agreements. So would you pray with me before we, we come to the text? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you in prayer knowing that, that you are the God who, who was in the beginning. The God who said, let there be light. Lord, we, we come to you knowing that you have chosen us by grace, not because there was anything significant in us, not because we had done any good works or would do anything righteous, but because of your grace, you chose us. You chose what was weak and foolish in this world to shame the things that are strong and wise. God, you, you chose through, the, through the, the, the foolishness and the weakness of the cross, our gospel of a crucified Savior who gave himself for us to teach us the greatest lesson of all. God, I ask that with humility we would come to the text today, knowing that you have chosen us, weak and foolish men and women, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High. You have chosen us who are weak and foolish to shame what seems strong and what seems wise in this world. Would, would this church, Snells Beach Baptist, be a church that presents your gospel to the world and how we love one another through our disagreement, as strong as it might be? We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and who lives in us. We ask this in accordance with Jesus who lives, who sits by, the, by your right hand, God, who, who lives to intercede for us. We pray this through the Holy Spirit who, who intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words. Would you give us insight today into your word? Would you give us strength by your Holy Spirit to live this out? Because it is only by your grace that we live in, in, in alignment with your truth, in a pursuit of your will, and in a way that glorifies you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as Christians, we are people of, of faith. There are certain things that we must believe in in order to call ourselves Christians. We believe in God who created all things. We believe that Jesus, his son, came and died for our sins, our, our sins against this creator God. This same Jesus was also raised from the dead to bring everlasting life to us who trust in his work. And we believe that, that the Holy Spirit has come and has breathed life into our otherwise dry and dead bones. And the Spirit breathes life in us so that we can live in the power of the resurrection here and now, in our lives. But our faith is not just these core beliefs. Our faith also works itself out in our individual lives. Our faith works itself out in how we pray, in how we worship. Our faith works itself out in, in the different things that we feel led by the Spirit to do. These, these are what we call convictions. These are matters of, of conscience. The Bible calls these disputed matters. And these, these convictions reflect the Holy Spirit working out in our lives and through our individual personalities, the reality of these big truths of our faith in Christ. In your personal walk with Jesus Christ, you have come to hold some practices as examples of the faith and love you have for Jesus. These convictions may take many forms, from how often you take to how often you take communion, to what songs you sing, even to what you wear in church, whether you wear slacks and a, and a suit or a jeans and a t-shirt, a dress or a blouse. 
Many of us have, have come to these convictions in part because of the church culture we were raised in, but also because as we have walked with Jesus Christ, as, as, we, have, as we have read the Bible and spent time with him in prayer, we have, we have come to hold these things. And we should guard these convictions carefully because they reflect our relationship with Christ. What about the convictions of others? These things that, that reflect the relationship with Christ that another believer has. How can our convictions, these, these kind of expressions of our faith in Christ, how can, how can we bring them together? How can we come together in unity when these convictions are expressed so differently sometimes? How can we as brothers and sisters in Christ, standing before this cross of Christ, how can we welcome one another in faith and in love without falling into bickering or resentment because of what marks us as different from one another? Does our faith liberate us to do whatever we want, or does it restrain us to behave a certain way? How do we respond to others? Well, the, the answer to this is found all over the New Testament. It is the, the self-humbling, others-exalting love for the fellow believer, which Christ exemplified, the example he gave us on the cross. This is what must rule our hearts. And the answer is so simple that although we know it, we, we rarely let it occupy our, our mental space, the, the thoughts of our daily living. Jesus preached it. Jesus lived it. He showed it on the cross. Paul takes this, and in Romans 14, he applies it. Paul doesn't teach it, but he applies it. Paul says, along with Christ, that the whole law, the whole Old Testament, can be summed up with the command to love God and to love your neighbor. Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Paul says in, in chapter 13, verse 10, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul illustrates this others-oriented attitude, this self others-exalting and self-humbling attitude. He applies this to our convictions. And in Romans 14, he's specifically talking about our convictions concerning proper worship. Things like music, things like dress. And so he, um, he does this in, in Romans chapter 14, in the first few verses. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And Paul is writing to a, a, a body, a, a church of both Jews and Gentiles around uh, the year 57 AD. And these Jews and Gentiles are, are gathered in scattered churches throughout the city of Rome, similar to how we are scattered throughout this region today. And Paul has never been to these churches, but he's writing to give them an explanation of the gospel. That's all of chapters 1 through 11. And in chapters 12 through 15, Paul applies this gospel. So would you read with me from Romans 14, verses 1 through 4? And I will be reading out of the, the English Standard Version. Romans 14, verse 1. But as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him 
stand. This is the word of the Lord. Just bow your head one more time with me as we come to our text. You make this book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourself. Show us our Savior. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as we walk through the, the text this morning, and that's, and that's what our, our pattern will be, we'll just walk through this text of Scripture, explaining and applying as we go. And as, as we walk through, I want to draw your attention to both the specific problem facing the church and Paul's solution. So first, the problem. We have two groups, the strong and the weak, and, and they both stand before the cross of Christ on an equal footing. So how should the strong and the weak practice the command to love one another when it comes to these disputed matters? This question is similar for us even today. How should we welcome our fellow believers with whom we disagree? And second, we'll look at the answer. Paul says that believers ought to welcome one another in the way that God welcomes them, not despising or judging the convictions and actions of others, which are held or committed in faith. Paul writes to a church that is being torn apart by different convictions on how to worship. They, they seem to be asking the question, does our faith liberate or does it restrain? So let's first look at the problem. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So here Paul gives us some insight into a specific problem facing this church in the first century. Paul uses the term the weak to describe a certain portion of the church in Rome. Well, even, even in today's society, being labeled as the weak is, is probably something that is meant to be an insult. It's, it's pejorative. It's, it's something that's meant to sting. It's not a nice way to label people. And so the fact that Paul uses it means that he is aware that the church in Rome is actually already using this kind of term. And, and he uses it now to let the church know that he's not only heard of the disagreements, but of the way that they're treating one another. This is not Paul's own term. He, he's trying to, to ingratiate himself to this church. He, he wants them to, to know him as, as the, the kind apostle. Because he wants to come and, and work with them later. So Paul doesn't use this term because he thinks they're weak, but because the church is using it, and they're actually using it to, to push this, this group down. So who are the weak? Who are the weak? There's a, a little bit of, of history. The, the church in Rome was planted by Jewish Christians. Most likely those Jews who had been present in Jerusalem for the Passover when Jesus was killed, and who, who stayed until the day of Pentecost, and these Jews were converted during Peter's sermon at Pentecost, or shortly after. And so when they returned back to Rome, up around the Mediterranean, they, they founded the church there. They began to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to their Gentile neighbors, their non-Jewish neighbors. And this would have been around AD 30 to 35. But then in, in the year 49, the emperor issued a decree that banned all Jews from Rome, and so they, they were spread back across the Mediterranean, down towards Jerusalem. Later, this, this ban was lifted, and you can read about this in the book of Acts. And so some of these founding members of this church in Rome, they made their way back 
to the church in Rome. But this church in Rome had been growing with non-Jewish members. It had been growing as a non-Jewish church while they were gone. And so the situation in Rome is, has two different groups, this ethnically and religiously diverse church. This church had a strong Gentile population with, with now a minority of Jewish members scattered throughout the entire city. And so with, with this historical situation set, we can understand a little bit about the relationships within the church as Paul is writing. The problem is, is that this social situation is not only a strain socially or relationally, but also theologically. You see, in this Roman church, like we said, is a minority group. But this minority group once was both the majority population and they were the founding members and teachers of that congregation. But in their absence, this Gentile or non-Jewish church had grown and begun to develop its theology, the, the way that it practiced its faith. And because they were less attached to these foreign Jewish traditions, the church in Rome, now under a, a non-Jewish influence, began to drift away from its Jewish roots in practice. And so the, the theology of both parties remains the same. Remember, we talked about these straight-line issues, who Jesus is, what he has done, and what this means for us. The theology of both of these groups remains the same, but, but the convictions concerning how to practice such theology is now different. So the social problem of a minority of more traditionally minded, mostly Jewish believers, are now apparently called the weak by their Gentile counterparts, their, their other congregants. This gives way to them quarreling, fighting over different opinions. And so the, the problem that we see in this text, it, it revolves around the command to love one another that Paul said back in, in chapter 13, verse 10. How are these two groups supposed to love one another when they have such completely different views on how to worship? Remember, this is back before we had, you know, hundreds of denominations and tens of churches in every single town that if you just didn't like what was happening here, you could pack up and go to the other one. There was one church. They gathered in different places, but there was one church in Rome. There was one church in Jerusalem, one church in Ephesus. How are believers supposed to live out their unity in the face of these differences. As Paul writes to this church, they're fighting to find an answer to the question, does faith liberate or restrain? Think about, think about our situation today. What disagreements do you see in the church? What convictions arise out of your individual faith? There might be generational differences in church. Tensions that, that come uh, to bear because of the, the music that we sing or what, what things we include in our service. Does faith liberate or restrain us today? The most obvious disagreement of our time is, is over a Christian response to everything from, from COVID to masks to the government and restrictions. This, this list could go on and on and on. And my goal here today is not to draw a straight line from scripture to our situation. Because believe me, there is not one. I have heard over and over people trying to, to show the Christian response to fill in the blank. Something from our day and age. Specifically related to COVID. But the problem for us is that our situation is not directly addressed in scripture. 
We have to draw a dragged, a dragged line from Scripture to how we apply it to our situation. And because there are multiple levels to our situation, we have to apply multiple principles from the Bible to our situation. And what I found is that two completely different groups can both be seeking to apply the same principle to love one another and come up with two completely different options. So how do we come together as people who believe in the same Jesus Christ, who are resurrected by the same Holy Spirit, joined to the same Father God? How can we come together when our convictions are so different? And please, please hear me. I am not afraid to take a stand for the truth of God's word. I have taught even in the last few months that, that through Christ alone we are saved. Something that in, in today's culture on social media would, would get me canceled if anyone in the world really cared what I had to say. I will take a stand on the biblical doctrines that undergird our faith. Because where the Bible provides us a straight line, something as, as simple as do not murder, there I will happily take a stand from the front of the church, from this pulpit, and show you why being a Christian means that you have to accept the truth that humans are made in the image of God. And killing innocent life is wrong. That's something that binds the conscience of every Christian. But where there is no straight line, I will keep my mouth shut. Some things, what this passage calls disputed matters, these are left to our, our own individual consciences. And it would be wrong for me to preach as a universal Christian truth what should be left up to your conscience. Don't hear me say that truth doesn't matter. There are fundamentals to our faith. These I will proclaim, and, and I, will, I will bear down on your conscience if you are out of line with something that is, that is essential to the Christian faith. Not every issue is a straight line issue. The Bible provides us with clear examples of straight lines that move from, from Scripture to the Christian worldview. The, the Christian view on, on gender, on sexuality, on race, abortion, and most importantly, topics like salvation, what we are to believe, how we are to behave. But not every issue is a straight line issue. And so I will keep my mouth shut on what is a jagged line. My concern here is for us to learn how to welcome one another, not, not to provide any sort of biblical answer to our day. And this is the hard work of the Christian life. This is why we each need to be returning to Scripture in prayer and by the power of the Holy Spirit, having our, our minds illuminated, having our consciences recalibrated constantly to the truth of God. Because there will always be tensions in our churches, tensions in our homes or with our neighbors. And the question is not, where in the Bible proves me right? But how can I love my brother or sister when we disagree? So how do we handle these tensions today? Does our fate liberate or restrain us? As we look at the specific situation Paul addresses in Romans, I want you to reflect on the specific situations that you face today. Where do your convictions clash with another's? Where do you find yourself quarreling over opinions? Where do you have the opportunity to bear the burden of this tension for the sake of your brother or sister. Coming back to the text, coming back to this, this specific problem in Romans, 
the stage is set for us to, to dig in. We, we understand the historical situation. We see where their relationships are being strained, and we understand the theological dimensions of this problem. This is all just from verse 1. So understanding this, we read verse 2, where Paul gives us an example. He says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person believes he can eat only vegetables. Here Paul gives us a specific example to highlight the problem in the churches in Rome. But what is actually at stake here? Why welcome the weak, and why is Paul talking about vegetables? Surely the Christian life is more than simply being nice to vegetarians. What is actually at stake? Does welcoming the weak mean that for us even steak is at stake? No, I don't think so. I think Paul has something far more meaningful and a lot harder for us to wrestle with in mind. Notice with me that in both verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about the weak and the strong, that is the one who eats and the one who doesn't eat, both are described as having faith. In verse 1, Paul says, welcome the weak in faith. In verse 2, he says, the, the one person believes he may eat anything. In each of these instances, in each of these verses, what Paul describes is the convictions, like we've said, that, that flow from each person's faith. In the case of the weak, Paul does not mean to say that their faith is weak, but rather uh, the application of their faith is weak. It could go further. The difference between the strong and the weak is not, is not anything about the strength of faith, but it is the extent to which they allow the gospel to free them from the religious convictions that used to mark the Jewish faith, out of whose tradition Christianity grew. So what is at stake in attacking the convictions of another believer is not just their behavior. We're not just trying to get people to be like us. You're actually attacking their faith. After Paul's exhortation for the strong to welcome the weak, he illuminates this command with a, a picture of a specific difference between these two groups. The weak in faith eat only vegetables, but the strong in faith feel that they can eat anything. Now this, this behavior is not actually described or prescribed, commanded in the Mosaic law for Jews. Jews were allowed to eat meat, but because Rome was so saturated with pagan sacrifice, the Jewish Christians who lived in Rome avoided buying meat in the markets because they could not trust that the meat in the markets had been prepared according to the standards in the law. So in, in an attempt to keep the law, the Jews just avoided meat altogether. And so the liberty, the, the freedom exercised by the strong is offensive to the weak, and it actually damages their faith in the Jewishness of their Messiah. See, because in, in their pursuit to worship Christ as the Jewish Messiah, the weak continue to keep this clean and unclean distinction that they see in the Mosaic Law. And the, the offense to their faith is centralized around this distinction. The, the stumbling block for them is the question, if these strong can worship our Jewish Messiah in an unclean manner, then is this Jesus himself actually clean? The faith, the, the conscience of the weak is what is at stake. Seeing the strong partake in, in what is unclean grieves the weak. Paul goes so far later to say that, that the weak may even be destroyed by this. That is, their, their faith is so sh shaken that the weak struggle to maintain their faith and are, and are thus unable to live fully into the joy that is promised to the believer 
because their consciousness is continually being um, checked. The weak also might have been pressured into eating meat alongside the strong. And so they would sin by violating their own conscience, eating meat when, when they believed that they should not. And so the, the, what is at stake is, is the, the faith, the conscience, the, the convictions of the weak that proceed from faith. So they, this is the weak. This is who they believe. Next, we have to ask who are the strong and what's at stake for them? Because that's important too. Most of these strong would be Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers who believe that their faith liberates them, frees them from the historic expressions of, of, of the Jewish religion, of Jewish piety. For the strong, the life won by Christ at the cross is a life characterized by freedom, by liberty, not by restraint. The convictions of the weak seem oppressive to the strong, and, and so it damages their faith in the liberating work that was done at the cross. What is at stake for the strong is the theological truth of the cross, the strength of the cross. Because if Christ did not liberate us from the law completely, then we're still in bondage. And it is important to note here, for us, I think especially, with this discussion that, that we're facing today, it's important to notice that Paul sides with the strong here. He picks a side. He doesn't say that both of these are equal views and, you know, uh, scripture's unclear. We can just move on. Both are true. That's what our world would say. Paul actually sides with the strong. He says in verse 14 of chapter 14, he says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in himself. Even what the law said was unclean, he says is now clean in Christ. Our world might, might agree to disagree because it believes that it's possible for something to be true for you but not for me. This is not what Paul says. The important thing for us to notice is that Paul picks a side. He says that the strong are right. Yet Paul doesn't spend any time defending the theological position of the strong. He doesn't spend any time saying, I'm right and you are wrong, except to mention it in passing. In fact, Paul doubles down on this idea of welcome. Paul draws a principle from the problem faced by the Roman churches. The, this principle of mutual acceptance, regardless of uh, the conviction. So Paul sees this problem, but then he turns it into a principle, a principle that they can apply. This is what he does in verse 3. Look with me at Romans 14, verse 3. Paul does not defend one view or the other. He doesn't focus on the position of each group. Instead, he identifies the problem as a theological one. Paul understands the historical problem of uh, the Jews being kicked out of Rome and then coming back. And while he, while he sympathizes, he understands with this social problem that is faced both by the Gentiles and by the Jews, he presses right up to these issues, and then he goes a step deeper. Today, if Paul were here, he would understand both sides of our debate, and he would walk right up to where we are, and then he would push past it. Because in reality, the problems we're facing this year, even if they last for the next decade or two or ten this is not the real issue. The real issue is how we respond to one another. The problem, both for these Jews and for us today, is ultimately about the way Christians ought to behave, the way Christians should behave. The problem is not that we have different convictions. The problem is how we treat one another. Not belief, but behavior. Remember, Paul picks a side, but he, he's pushing past that. Past that. Don't think for a second that our situation today is any different. 
You might be right. But the question is how you are treating those who disagree with you. Do you look down on them? Are you angry with them? Do you despise or, or make little of their convictions, their response to this situation? Do you pass judgment or, or do you condemn their conclusions? Read with me verse 3 where Paul takes this problem and he, he makes it a principle to apply. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And then he says, why? For God has welcomed him. In this verse, Paul steps right past the presenting problem of convictions. And he puts each group under the obligation, the oughtness, he says, to love one another. Like we mentioned, he says a few verses ago in chapter 13, verse 10, that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul opposes both the disdainful attitude of the strong, even though he agrees with them, and the, the judging attitude of the weak. The word disdain that I just mentioned is not really a word we use often, but it's really worth mentioning here because this is a word that I would put on a lot of our treatments of one another today. A lot of the things I've seen in the media or on Facebook, not necessarily in the church, but I don't think we're, we're prideful enough to think that we are safe from this. The word translated disdain means to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that something has no merit or worth. So attitude or how you treat something or someone that it has no merit or worth. It could also mean to have no use for something because it's just beneath someone's consideration. Disdain is an old word, and I think that our English word trivialize captures the idea of both of these, both as treating something as worthless and as it being beneath one's consideration. So what with the strong do they, the strong, the ones who might be correct, according to Paul, they trivialize the convictions of the weak. They, they don't understand that the weak feel strongly about certain things because it is linked to their faith in Christ. Remember, convictions are outworkings of our faith. But similarly, just as Paul opposes this disdainful or, or trivializing attitude of the strong, he also opposes the sinful attitude of the weak towards the strong. The weak judge the strong because of the liberty with which they express the Christian faith. This word can, can also be translated, this word to judge, means to pass an unfavorable judgment upon, to criticize, to find fault with, to condemn. The weak judge the actions of the strong, looking down on them, for the way in which they act. I want you to notice Paul's timeless insight into the human mind. This isn't just a problem in Rome. Each side of the issue, thinking that they are correct, responds a certain way. The side that expresses liberty will trivialize the restraints of the other. While the side that expresses a religious conviction judges this apparent lack of conviction in the other group. More simply than a biblical command to welcome one another, this attitude should mark those who seek to be good to their fellow neighbor because it keeps them free from sin and, and this distasteful behavior. These two attitudes that Paul mentions, they're marked by pride. They're marked by this trivializing and, and judgment that each group feels. And each group, as, as they feel these emotions, it only cements them in their pride into a self-justified mode of living. 
And this self-justification continues to look down on the other group as inferior in the attempt to worship correctly. We don't belong to this same historical situation. But look around you. Look around the church in New Zealand today. How much mutual acceptance are you seeing between Christians who disagree? Do you trivialize the convictions of your brothers, especially as it relates to our situation? Do you put those down who think differently than you by challenging their intellect, their ability to read scripture, or simply because they don't see eye to eye with you? This passage is a word to us today as much as it was to the church at Rome. We need the hand of the Lord on us to purge the sin from our attitudes towards one another. So Paul has showed throughout the letter that that the ground before the cross of Christ is level ground. There is no advantage being a Jew. There is no advantage being a Gentile. Here, he rebukes those who would scramble over top of one another in an attempt to get higher, in an attempt to get closer to Christ. When you look at other Christians, especially those with whom you disagree, do you take the time to recognize that you stand on equal footing, or do you push them down in your vain attempt to be closer to Christ than they are? Paul says that we are to welcome fellow believers with whom we disagree because God has welcomed them. With this, with this last statement in verse 3, Paul previews the solution. Look again to your Bibles one last time and read verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul confronts the problem of disagreement, and he grounds his assertion, his, his um, conviction that each group is under obligation to each other in the central idea of this letter, the idea that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew or Greek. Paul, in discussing this problem, looks at this situation and he says the ground before the cross of Christ is level ground. Here he now presents the solution in full, that each of us stands before the cross of Christ and it's one man jury, Jesus himself. So in, in addressing the judgment of the weak, Paul makes a strong theological case for mutual acceptance. Paul labels the people of faith as, as household servants in verse 4. Paul makes it clear that each member of this household of faith, each member of the church, answers only to one Lord and is not to be judged by another servant. You and I are servants in this house of faith. The weak attempted to, to judge their fellow believers while neglecting to admit that they too are servants in this house. And Paul says that each believer is to be judged before his own master. Here Paul says in verse 4 that the ground is level before the cross of Christ. Therefore, no judgment passed by you or me on one another serves any purpose other than to keep the one who would judge, that's me if I'm judging, trapped in sin. My judgment of others, my trivializing of, of someone else's convictions, especially of fellow believers, these actions serve only to keep me trapped in sin and out of communion with you. Our petty squabbling, which neglects to fulfill the command to love one another, serves only to condemn us as sinners and to merit the death from which Jesus saves us. Believers are called to fulfill the command to love one another by welcoming one another, 
and by refraining from judging one another. Well, in this short passage, there's four verses, the strong are commanded to welcome and the weak are prohibited from judging. In, in the larger passage, each of these commands are expanded to refer to the entire household of faith in verses 13 and in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 7. But in many ways, these four verses serve as a paragraph that sets a model for the entire discussion, ranging all the way from the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1, which we read, all the way through the end of 15, verse 7. I would encourage you to go ahead and, and go back home and read this whole section, 14.1 to 15.7. Discuss it over lunch as you guys meet together or over morning tea. Both the strong and the weak are exhorted to love one another. And Paul grounds this acceptance in the cross of Christ. But Paul goes on to say even more. This isn't just about our behavior. We are not good enough on our own even just to do this. Paul says that the Lord before whom each servant is judged, this cross that we stand before, this is the same Lord who is actually able to make us stand. Something that's not really easily seen in English, but is, is obvious if you read uh, this, these verses in Greek, especially this last verse, is that the, the word for stand is repeated three times. The, the text that I read says this, it is before his own master, the, the, the servant in the house of God, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This word for stand, or, or being upheld, it is the same word each time. It is before Jesus Christ that we will stand or fall. Jesus Christ will, will stand us up because he is able to make us stand. There, there's another play on words here. The word for master and Lord is the same in the Greek New Testament. And so while, while the first use of the word in, in, in verse 4 is applied in, in Paul's kind of image of, of servants who don't have authority over other servants because there's a, a master of the house. Paul picks this up and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ who upholds us by faith. So with this repetition, Paul makes it clear that, that the same master before whom we are judged, which is far more important than uh, our brothers and sisters in faith judging us, this same master is the one who will uphold us. Jesus Christ is both the judge and the pardon for those of us who believe. He is the priest and the sacrifice. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and each of us stand before the cross. And it's one man jury. Our situation today is not the same, but it is similar to what we have seen in Romans chapter 14. And the problem for us Christians is not first who in this relationship between me and you who disagree, it is not who in this relationship is right, but how can I be in a right relationship with you who might disagree with me? No matter what side of a theological issue you are on, you are wrong if you do not act in love. You can be right and still be wrong. Because the justification run one at the cross for each of us liberates us from the need to bring anything to our salvation, anything to our Christian life, Bringing us into the household of God by the blood of his son is all that we need. Yet we are not free to behave however we want because we are restrained by love, the love that God had for us. God has welcomed us, and so we ought to welcome each other. You stand before the cross of Christ, so don't judge one another. You have been welcomed by God into his household, 
So do not lord your liberty over those over whom it may destroy. Faith may liberate us, but love restrains. Don't trivialize the convictions of another, but put their needs, their convictions, their conscience before your own exercise of liberty. Do not judge your brother, but look to the cross underneath which you both stand. Love your neighbor as yourself. Fulfill the law. Paul concludes this this long section in chapter 15 like this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. You, friends, as a a Christian in a relationship with other Christians, you are called to seek the good of your brother or sister in Christ. Because like Paul said just here, and also in Philippians, he said, Christ did not please himself, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and and being found in this human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Would you pray with me? Your word is is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, only by your grace and through the cross of Christ, by the resurrecting power of your Holy Spirit, have we been joined to you, given life and immortality, the ability to walk in light. We thank you for this. But Lord, we remain here on this tainted earth, groaning and waiting for your new earth to come. Lord, would, would you help us to look to the cross and live accordingly? Would you help us to walk in faith and in love? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.